and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we'll be talking about games adapted from existing intellectual properties. Television, film, and comic books can all provide compelling foundations for video games, but are video games the best platform for adaptations? To help me discuss this topic is a man whose idea for a Robocop dating sim has yet to find funding. It's my good friend, Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? Good, man. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm still waiting on that Series 1 funding to come through. But in the meantime, out here in Los Angeles, I'm, I'm living my own adaptation. Like the, mo- the Nicolas Cage movie no, adaptation? No, 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 no. Actually, it's uh, oh. the butterfly effect. I don't know if you heard. There's a, a big, huge migration of butterflies, like literally thousands of butterflies flying through Los Angeles right now. It's oh. quite interesting. So I, I never really like, saw the butterfly effect, but uh, I'm pretty sure that's what it was about. <laughs> you're not. You're, well, we guess I guess we could say you're probably not missing a whole lot in that <laughs> regard. <laughs> Saying that your life is like the movie Butterfly Effect is probably gonna give a lot of people the wrong idea there, Jared. I'll see it eventually, but I'm pretty sure I'm on the right course. When I was writing that intro, you have no idea how many like movie and like video game genres i tried pairing until i landed on robocop dating simulator that was just like (laughs) the hardest part of the show so far it is it i i will literally spend about an hour writing the first 30 seconds of the show and then just poop out the rest (laughs) (laughs) that's how i roll it's good start strong like always (laughs) always yep everyone knows our intros are always spot on jared (laughs) yes and but jared today we have a great guest uh to, to talk about adapting video games Video game adaptations, adaptations of video games. I see. Okay, when I was writing the notes, even just the term adaptation, I found difficult to write into the notes because I can never tell. Like, if I say video game adaptation, do people think I'm talking about a movie based on a video game, or a game based on a movie? Why not both? Why not both? <laughs> it, it's a it's a weird word. I, I realized as I was writing these show notes that I uh, I I struggle with how that. Um, how that word works in relation to this topic. But anyway, maybe maybe we'll get it straightened out. Maybe our guest can help me because he's a narrative designer with Endless Entertainment and a Latinx in gaming co-founder and chair. Please welcome to the show, Juan Vaca. Juan, welcome to the show, man. How you doing? Hey, guys. Thanks for inviting me on. Uh, I'm doing great. You know, life as a game developer is, you know, as great as it can be and just as hard as you imagine it. So, <laughs> you know, life is life. You told us you're, you're working from home now which uh, I imagine the commute's got to be pretty sweet. Yeah, it's actually pretty great. The traffic in the kitchen at the coffee maker. <laughs> That's where all the traffic is when people work from home. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine my joke has got to like have gotten old at this point. Like you just have that response like cocked and loaded for when like someone has a dumb joke like Steve. You're like <laughs> back yeah. into the fray. <laughs> um, no, I, like I, I I'm living a, a pretty great you know, life where I'm getting to paid to write jokes. So part of this is kind of, you know, just getting to flex my creativity and, you know, have conversations and be able to tell stories. That's what I do. I'm a storyteller. I'm a narrative designer by trade, but essentially what I do is I just facilitate the telling of stories, uh, either with agency or without. So, so you get paid to write jokes. How much money, if you were oh, going to yeah. pay me for my awesome joke at the start, how much money would I make? <laughs> let's see uh <laughs> after are we talking about like after taxes or before tax yeah, i don't, let's just I don't think i don't think he needs taxes. i don't think he needs a calculator to give you the number zero chair <laughs> we're talking like pennies on the dollar all right like, well, well we'll figure that we'll talk after 
Juan, you used to you you worked at Telltale, and actually, I knew this about you before I had invited you on the show. And when I I pitched you a bunch of ideas for for topics to talk about, this is the one that we ended up landing on. But I pitched this one to you because I know Telltale had worked on a a bunch of properties that were based on existing intellectual properties. So what was your role when you were at Telltale? I started in Telltale in 2013, right after The Walking Dead Season 1 won Game of the Year at the Spike Awards. So I entered a studio that had such amazing storytelling like power. And, and that was actually part of the reason why I wanted to work there is because like these are the types of games that I want to make or experiences, you know, however you want to define it, you know, as, as the industry evolves. Now, did you step in immediately as a writer? No, no, no. I, I actually got hired as an assistant producer. And so a lot of the stuff that I did was, you know, the underground like logistics of it all, which, you know, sometimes meant like talking between departments and making sure that assets get done and created on time. But it's also like the grunt work of filling out spreadsheets, updating spreadsheets, talking to people every day, um, staying late to order dinner, you know, booking guests, you know, everything that, you know, you would think of an intern does that was basically what i was also doing but i was also an assistant producer so i kind of had the gig then we hired some like more interns who were actually doing the same work and then we're like actually just promote them to assistant producer as well so we slowly like built up this team because i mean games are always understaffed (laughs) yeah i can imagine the more hats that you can wear the more valuable you become. Mm -hmm. Like, even though my job was more of a project management logistical thing, my entire life I've been creative and I've been wanting to write or design and, you know, be on the stage, not necessarily behind the stage. And, you know, I really had to advocate for myself. It was because I had been there, I think, a good bit and I was advocating for myself that, You know, they gave me the chance to do both jobs, right? Like, okay, sit in the meeting and take notes and sometimes offer an idea, right? And then slowly, you know, I moved into creating and just doing it because I had been listening and absorbing the process and seeing everyone's feedback come together. And I'd be like, okay, well, now I know what works and the things that don't work. And if I stay away from the things that don't work and I learn those lessons, it'll help the creative process. And so I really refined my storytelling skills in those creative rooms with all these brilliant people at Telltale. Now, were you actually writing for any of the games that Telltale was was making at that time? Um, I started designing at the end of Tales from the Borderlands. So about, oh, right on, right on. So I don't know if you've played it, but there's a really awesome fight sequence at the very end that has conditional stuff there. I got a chance to write a couple lines for uh, Claptrap because it was a cross-collaboration. Nice. So it's been, I think, a few years that I've been doing creative work now, and, and that's now that's all I do. And you're working at Endless Entertainment now, and you're doing that same thing. You're doing the, uh, the narrative design there as well. Yeah, so Endless Entertainment, I've been working for them for about a year now, and current project is called Series, and it's a mobile story platform you know filled of aspirational stories set within the nbc universal licenses like franchise library i guess oh nice anything anything you're able to share that you're like properties you're working with we're we're out in um beta and soft launching in canada and germany right now and it's coming soon worldwide 
but we, yeah, we've been really fortunate to have some really awesome titles. Uh, let's see, The Breakfast Club and 16 Candles. Oh, nice. Saved by the Bell, Law and Order, Xena. My wife listens to this show and you just immediately got her attention. <laughs> yeah, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're basically taking what we know about storytelling and interactive storytelling and putting that into small digestible episodes that are you know, hopefully entertaining and profitable. Since it seems like Endless Entertainment, as you're saying, is focused a little bit more on the mobile market, have you had to make any changes in the way that you approach storytelling coming from Telltale to now working at a, like a more mobile-focused environment? Absolutely. You know, Telltale had a very unique, I guess, brand to it. You know, you could tell what you were making and everything, you know, felt like the investment of the choices. And like you could tell you were playing a Telltale game. And part of that was part of the formula that people, you know, could kind of see over time. Mm -hmm. You know, the formula sometimes works, but if you just use it as a flat template, like that's all you're going to have is a flat template. And like your seams are going to kind of show. So as an artist, you know, you kind of want to push your tools, you know, to, to try new things. Something that I'm really fortunate to be trying at Endless, where we're still kind of using that same choose your own adventure, do this, do that, three choice, four choice like system. Mm -hmm. But we're taking it in places that are more than just dialogue. Nice. And you're, you're enjoying the, uh, the, the difference from Telltale? Yeah, yeah, I definitely. Well, first of all, we're a startup. So that means that there's not a lot of people to like pass the work on to. <laughs> you have to do it yourself. Yeah, I imagine it, it provides a little more freedom. There's something like exactly like what you're saying with Telltale. They, they definitely did seem like there was a formula and it worked really, really well for a very long time. But I could see how it, it starts to feel a little bit rigid, especially if you're like just using that formula. And especially when you're working with such high profile IPs. And we, and we could probably get into this a little bit later in our discussion for the, the episode today. But I can, I can totally see where you're coming from with that. I want to talk a little bit about Latinx and gaming. We have a mutual friend in Elaine Gomez, former uh, past guest on our show, Elaine Gomez. But you're a, you're a chair on Latinx and Gaming. So what what is your involvement with that organization? I'm one of the original founders. I'm actually number three. I was approached by the, I, I would say the original, Christina and Judy. And they connected me to start a special interest group uh, with the IGDA, the International Game Developers Association, you know, to kind of, you know, raise awareness, create a culture, build a community for underrepresented Latinx game developers. And so we started as just three people on a, an introductory email and have since turned it into this community that is uh, self-sufficient and self-promoting by accepting and including all forms of Latinx representation in the gaming community. And so like one of the key things that we did was lower the bar and make it accessible to everyone. Because I think, you know, inclusion and diversity is really what brings people together because we see that we have so much more in common. And so we really wanted to create a place for, you know, not just us, but all of us that can fall under this umbrella that is, you know, Latinidad. And then as we started this like movement, we met some really amazing people such as Elaine 
And, you know, they came on board and, you know, Elaine is one of our strongest admins, moderators. I'm not sure what her title is because this is like a grassroots organization. Right on, man. Yeah, that's a really cool work that you guys are doing. And you guys just launched a new website. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, Latinxandgaming.com. It's a it's a nice looking website. When this episode goes live, I'll make sure and tweet out the link to that so everyone can check it out and find the resources that are available for everyone through that website. That'd really be cool. great. That's really cool. Of course, man. Oh, I'm happy, happy to do that. And, and now your Twitter bio says that you also do PTSD and mental health advocacy. And what is that? Like how how do you incorporate that into the work that you're doing? Or do you? Is that is that something that you uh, you do with video games, or is that something that's separate from the video games that you work on or are interested in? I mean, I think I think it's a little bit of of all of it, right? Like, I'm vocal about my own mental health issues. I have severe depression and PTSD. A lot of it is from my time one as a youth, but also as a veteran. I was in the Marines for eight years, and so. I had PTSD undiagnosed and I was carrying around, you know, a lot of aggression and a lot of um, fear unbeknownst to me, um, just conditionalized over the things that like I was telling myself. And it wasn't until, you know, I had therapy and I reached a certain point in my life where I actually had a flashback that I realized, you know, I needed to do something about this and I needed to take care of myself. And, you know, it, it took a lot of work, but my life has seriously improved. You know, it's an easier, it's an easier path for myself. And I know that I have a lot of friends still, you know, veterans are still carrying a lot of resentment or they get out, out of the military and they don't know what they're going to do next. So I um I also volunteer with Stack Up, you know, to go and have these gaming events and talk to other veterans and you know see what their plan is. You know, are they using their GI Bill? Are they getting any help that they may need? And so it all started with like giving back that way. Mm-hmm. So that the more that I talked about what my mental health issues were, the more that I realized more people also felt that way. And, you know, I've been on panels and talks about like imposter syndrome as a game developer, um, because, you know, people will project things that no one else even tells them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember after I gave a talk on imposter syndrome, a guy at Indiecade, you know, came up to me and said, hey, thanks for telling me that. Like, you know, I I only make mobile games, so I don't consider myself a game developer. Mm -hmm. And I was just like. Like, let's, let's process that. Let's talk about that, you know? Mm-hmm. Thank you for your service, and thank you for, um, for speaking so openly about uh, your mental health. I mean, that kind of work is, is important. And, um, Not enough people out there doing it. Yeah, and it, it, it's cool to hear that you, you carry that with you into the design of your games as well. It's easy for us to all overlook what people are going through mentally. You know, like, it's, it's a very internal struggle for so many people. So to have someone out there like yourself who's out there opening up and talking about your own experiences, it can only lead to good things. So um, thank you for being out there and talking about that stuff. Today we're here to talk about some video game stuff though. We're talking about video games adapted from intellectual properties. And we typically start this out talking about the uh, the origins of this. So Jared, why don't you lead us on a little discussion about the origins of adapted video sure. games or video game adaptations have we discovered which is the correct way to say it yet stay tuned it's still undecided 
<laughs> okay. Maybe by the end. On the next episode. <laughs> uh, go ahead and step in my way back machine, because this one goes back to 1976 with an arcade. Do we need a sound effect for that, Jared? <laughs> We don't have a budget for this kind of thing. <laughs> no. uh, 1976, a game came out called Death Race. It was developed by Exidy, and the players drove cars through a cemetery while avoiding obstacles and running over gremlins. This game is often cited as one of the first games to stir up controversy about the topic of violence in video games. Anybody, anybody who remembers the arcade game Death Race, I'm sure remembers the discussion around about violence that surrounded it. Uh, this would be that'd be a good question for your father, actually, right? He seemed like this is like his time where he'd be playing arcade games. I wonder if he remembers this. I don't know. I, I feel like he wasn't interested in those kinds of discussions at the time, but it's possible. He he definitely is an old timer. I feel like the that's like an age old thing where it's like you're gonna you're, there's always gonna be a shift in blaming some type of mm-hmm. video games because it's the newest medium, you know. Um, I think prior to this, it was like violence in comic books. Dancing in small towns. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We got to outlaw dancing. (laughs) So the reason we bring up Death Race is because a lot of people believed that it was based off of the film Death Race 2000, which was released the year before that. It features similar things and objectives, namely running people over to get points. However, the the developer, Exidy, officially never got a license to do that. So... They claim the similarities were a coincidence, but I don't know about that. I'm not convinced. (laughs) It's hard to tell because the the arcade game itself, you're driving through a cemetery, which is not exactly what was happening in the film. And they they did defend the, the naming of the game, being that it was talking about death race, being about driving through a cemetery and like fighting these gremlins or goblins or whatever they are, being these like... um, images of death like that's where death race gets its name but it is highly suspect especially because immediately after that within that same year within 1976 there were a bunch of games that sort of did the same thing there was um shark jaws i don't know if you guys can guess i don't know if you guys can guess what movie that was based on oh yes classic um there was like a there was like a sci-fi shooter i think it was called it was called like star star force Uh, very clear something like it. it was like very clearly based on star wars and so there was a bunch of this that happened all around that same time where people were just sort of taking known properties and making games that definitely looked like them. But, but, but no, one, no one was like, as far as I could tell, no one was getting sued. So it was like the Wild West in the 70s. Something tells me that uh, IP lawsuits weren't super popular right now. But this or it might have just been because they're video games. Like it might have been sort of that people just saw video games as being disposable medium. Uh, or or not even worthy of a lawsuit like how would they even like come across it right like there wasn't like a website or something that they could be like oh my god this person you know how does the word spread back Mm -hmm. then i think maybe like a cease and desist is probably as far as they got yeah it's the wild west like i said man it was just everyone was just getting away with whatever they wanted a couple years later on the atari 2600 we had superman Designed by John Dunn for the 2600, players took on the role of Superman, who you fly around Metropolis and repair a bridge destroyed by Lex Luthor and arrest criminals. Uh, It's considered the first officially licensed video game adaptation uh, of an existing IP. It featured several innovative gameplay mechanics, such as multiple screen play area, pause functionality, and like a really strange multiplayer i i couldn't find a whole lot about the multiplayer in this game other than i think it was mm, a, a co-op okay so yeah from from what i read it was a co-op experience 
where one player would go up and down with Superman, and the other player could jump and go left and right with the same same character. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, you were both controlling the same character. So it reminds me of like that, that was the people there. who do the uh, speed runs, like people who each hold one like one side of the controller and do a speed run together. Like that's pretty common today. But yeah, I, they were just trying to see what worked. <laughs> it, it, spoiler alert: It didn't work so well. Juan, did you play? Did you get a chance to play any Superman? Were you? Did you have an Atari? I, I had an Atari twenty six hundred, and um, I sadly didn't get a chance to play Superman. Mm. One of my uh, cartridges that I was familiar with. It's supposed to be really good. I, looking look, looking back at that game, um, people speak very highly of it, which is interesting when you compare it to then the like Nintendo sixty four Superman, which is maybe the the lowest a video a video game can sink. As we moved into the 80s on the Intellivision, we got Tron Deadly Discs. It was developed by Don Daglo and Steven Sintz for Mattel. Uh, the players controlled Redman and battled foes in an arena by throwing and avoiding discs. And, and not, to, not to be confused with the Redman of Wu-Tang Clan. No. That's not who we're, that's not who we're playing as. No, he was, doing, different, different he was Red probably Man. doing other things than video games at this point. Um, <laughs> Tron Deadly Discs is recognized as one of the first officially licensed video game adaptations from a film. Uh, Disney shared the rights to Tron prior to the release of the 82 film, and the game was released before the film premiered. So we'll probably see, as we kind of go through some more history coming up here, a lot of that happening in uh, the years after that. A lot of games coming out to promote film. Uh, it was it was definitely part of Disney's marketing strategy to boost the film and the appeal. Yeah, and this one's interesting. Like Disney, even back in the early 80s, had, a, had an idea that video games were going to be something. Like, video games were going to be this way to help market a movie. Now, obviously, Tron was a movie about a video game. So it's, it's kind of cool that they, they put these video games out into the world before the release of the, the movie. Because I, I think there were a few games that made it out before the movie was released. If not before, it was like very shortly after. They, they, there were several Tron video games. But it definitely would be cool to like be there in the 80s, be able to play this game in the arcade or on your Intellivision or wherever it was, and then go see the movie about that game that you have in your home. Like today, I feel like we kind of take that for granted. Like, oh, I can go home and play my Spider-Man video game and then I go see Homecoming in the theater. And that's just the way games and movies exist today. But at the time, like that must have been super sweet. Now, did you have any experience with the Tron? Any of the Tron video games, Juan? Uh, no, these are also not part of my like gaming childhood. I don't think I even watched Tron until I was in my teens. Yeah, that's probably for the best. <laughs> I feel like, I don't know, I, I, I watched Tron when I was younger, and I even then I was like, what is this? <laughs> get, get, me, get Star Wars back on the TV. <laughs> so let me ask you this, Juan. Like, when you think about video games adapted from existing IPs, like what, what kind of jumps to your mind when you're thinking about that concept? Oh, I look into, you know, one, like what makes the world come alive? You know, what makes Gotham feel like Gotham or New York feel like New York? But at the same time, you know, what are the problems that the hero is facing? You know, what are the, the pillars of that hero or of the characters that we need? You know, how can we identify what is special about this world so that we can translate, you know, what's important about those defining characteristics into a similar experience. 
if you look at all video games based on existing IPs, are there any commonalities or through lines that you see that kind of link them all together? Um, well, I mean, I think the the one true one is that you always have to be the hero, right? Because we embody the character, like that means that you're putting on more than just, you know, the controller in your hand. You need to really feel like that character, you know, it, it better feel like um, Spider-Man is, you know, swinging when he's swinging, mm-hmm. man is flying when he's flying. I got a chance to learn a lot of this when I was an intern at Marvel Games in 2012 when I was in college. And we really would refine and look at the context of games that were being submitted to Marvel, you know, and there were certain bits of criteria that you had to follow that are just kind of standard nerd lore that you kind of Mm -hmm. it's like, well, you know what Spider-Man's, you know, quippy voice sounds like. And he wouldn't say things that are like mean, you know, or he wouldn't use a gun, you know, you would. But then you also had to respect certain like laws that are deal with like contract issues so for instance in the spider-man games you had you could only use spider-man characters you know similar to like the movie breakup right now so you couldn't like even mention of avengers or anybody else in the spider-man game so you had to be aware for you know all the extra lines that were added so we talked about it we did a show on qa and the game I worked on was based on uh, an existing IP. And uh, I, I definitely know what you're talking about because we would have those things like keep an eye out for this, you know, for these kinds of, of things and make sure that none of them have slipped into here. So even at the QA level, we were given instruction on, you know, what, what could and couldn't make it in based on the IP that we were working with. It's their license, you know, mm-hmm. it's, or it's your license that you have to uphold don't want to send mixed signals or change things that you know the audience is expecting right Mm -hmm. but what is the audience expecting like what makes this great i think well i I just want to throw all the praise to the insomniac team with spider-man it's one of the best things i've ever played from start to finish like feeling like spider-man everything absolutely marvelous yeah new game new game seems great but the the new game actually sort of does what I think a lot of the video games adapted from existing IP do, though, which is, you know, you know, I was asking if there was like some sort of commonality between all of these games. And when I think of uh, games based on existing IPs, like the first thing that jumps to my mind is a third person action game. And as, as we look at a lot of the games, I think that we're going to talk about coming up in this episode, I feel like that is a pretty common design philosophy for a lot of this stuff, like third person over the shoulder action game. I feel like the new Spider-Man for everything that it does great, it still sort of exists in that very narrow definition of a video game adaptation. You're absolutely right. The third person action beat em up. Is a, has started to become a standard. And I think one of the things that made the Walking Dead game from Telltale so exciting was that it was a different way to approach a video game based on a television show or on a comic book. It wasn't first-person shooter or third-person shooter Walking Dead. It was sort of the, the choose-your-own-adventure. It was the narrative experience of that game, I think, that made it like so compelling, so exciting, because... I don't think I don't know that a uh, like a third person shooter set in that universe would work because I think what makes 
that show and that comic book work is those difficult decisions, like seeing characters, like what is it like to go through the zombie apocalypse? What are the hard decisions you have to make? So it was, it was cool to see something like a video game that took a different approach line up so well with the, like the philosophy of the show. Uh, I, and I thought that, I thought that that was a really neat marriage of those two ideas into one really good game. When you brought up that definition of third person action game, I was just trying to go through my, my head and think of something that wasn't that. And there's really not that many, but uh, one of the most successful examples that I, I did remember is Star Wars X-Wing. And I think that did mm. what I would like to see a lot of these these franchises doing was put you like in a first person situation, like right into the universe, right? You're not taking on... Uh, another adventure is is Han Solo or Luke Skywalker. You're you're a X-wing pilot, and I think that that is a, a really cool direction to take a lot of this stuff. And uh, you know, we've seen the Star Wars franchise try a lot of different things, but this thing came out in 1993, and I can't really think of too many more examples uh, since then that have, that have kind of been putting you right in that first person seat in that universe. And Star Wars, Star Wars is kind of an anomaly, and we'll talk about them. We'll talk about Star Wars a little bit more, a little later in the episode. But Star Wars is one of those properties that has had so many games made about it. We've seen the third-person, over-the-shoulder action version of Star Wars in Jedi Academy, a game, I, a game I like a lot. We've seen the first-person shooter version of it in Dark Forces, another game that I really, really enjoy. But I. I I feel like Star Wars might be sort of the uh, the anomaly in this discussion because they've just made so many games. Like it's had opportunities to try a lot of different things. They've done the RPG version of Star Wars. They've done the RTS version of Star Wars. They've done you know all the different kinds of Star Wars that you can do. So why do you think that is? Why are so many people interested in Star Wars? No. Wh- um, well, why do you think that they they take so many chances uh, in, in expanding that? I think it goes, I, I think with Star Wars specifically, it goes to something at the heart of the IP, which is the idea that there's sort of this infinite to the galaxy that, that it goes on forever. And in the movies, we get little glimpses of that as we visit different planets or see different alien races. It, it just creates so many opportunities to be like, oh, well, what's it like on that side of the world? What's it like for this person in the rebellion? And in, and in, in imagining the world in that way, I think it sort of prompts a lot of different uh, design ideas for games. Absolutely. I played Star Wars Galaxies for like two or three years. Whoa, oh, you were like, it was you and me on the server then. It was just the two of us. You guys like <laughs> each other. <laughs> yeah. so, oh, oh that was you. Oh, cool, cool. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, I, uh, you brought up a really good point where it was, you know, are you playing an established character, you know, and or are you playing someone that you get to define? You know, like, I think a lot of that determines, like, who your hero is and, and, you know, what you're doing with your game. And, you know, when you're talking about Star Wars, it's like we do have all these great canon characters, but sometimes for the story, like, you just can't do things with them, right? Mm -hmm. Um, When we were making the Batman game, you can't really have Batman die from a punch, you know? So how do you design an action sequence? Mm -hmm. You you need to keep the story moving along and make it feel real. But if you're, if you get to define your character, you kind of have this freedom to take it wherever you want. And one of the things that I loved about galaxies was that 
there were so many jobs mm-hmm. that you could do. Like if you wanted to be a crafter and like merchant, you could do that. So many great ideas in that game. I could probably do an entire episode just talking about that. game. Please yeah. call, call me back for that. <laughs> one when you do. For sure. <laughs> but I keep hoping someone will just rip off the crafting system from that game. Like someone just steal that idea. They're not around anymore. You're probably fine if you steal it. No one's going to sue you. Yeah. Good thing that uh, Disney's not known to be litigious. I know. <laughs> also you can't like you can't copy uh game mechanics so yeah exactly <laughs> never been done before <laughs> exactly now jared um are there any other games that you're that come to mind when you're thinking about uh video games adapted from existing ips like is there anything else that sticks out in your mind as good examples of this idea well i'm gonna be real for a minute and uh, like if we're thinking like what's the first thing that pops into my mind in this discussion it's a lot a lot of bad games I feel like there was a definite period where almost every new movie over a certain budget was also getting a game, which when you tried to play was very much an afterthought. And probably the people who were involved in that game had no idea what the movie was about. And that was uh, was a little unfortunate. You know, it kind of ruined the the entire genre for a long time. I remember being young and when video games would come out that were based on a movie, you know, like all the video games coming out, I would be excited for it all the way up until the moment I was playing it. But I would, but I had that excitement every time. You know what I mean? Like when I was younger, I never learned my lesson. It was always like, Ooh, that thing has a video game. Let's pick that one up. Um, it, it, it feels like it's shifted away from that though. Do you guys yeah. get that sense? Like I still have Absolutely. this kind of this sour taste in my mouth from, uh, I don't know what it was like 20 years ago, 15 years ago, like that style of, of adapting stories to video games. But it, it, I don't feel like it's that way anymore. It's starting to become harder to like time those releases, right? Like, look at games getting pushed back, you know, to begin with. Mm-hmm. Game is very hard, and it takes a long time. You know, similar to a movie, but if you're going to try to coordinate like a simultaneous release, like that's a lot of money to invest into. You know, hopefully having you know two rockets land on the moon at the same time. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's possible, but you know, not without like things happening my experience with actually with this jared it, you, you made me think of this is um for a while my wife was in, she had expressed an interest in getting into video games i played a lot of video games this was before we were married and so i said like oh okay she wants to she's interested in playing video games i'm gonna go pick up a couple of video games that i think would interest her so i found some based on movies that she liked i found the pirates of the caribbean game at world's end i think it was came out around like 2007 and uh, Harry Potter, like two movies or two franchises that she really liked at the time. And we tried to play them together, but they were horrible. They were just so, just so bad. It had like the opposite effect of what I had intended. And I felt terrible. At the She's time. like, this is what you do? Like, I yeah. swear, no. <laughs> no, no, I play, I play good games. I swear. <laughs> and it, it, I should say, it's not that the games were necessarily bad per se. You know, it's not like, like they were functional games. They weren't broken, busted ass games. They just were like g- generic third person kind of actiony brawler games, you know, and, and maybe that works for some franchises. I mean, I have such fond memories of playing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the arcade, and that's all it is. Like you walk around and you punch uh, the Foot Clan soldiers in the face until they fall down, like, and it works for that. But there's something about like um, Pirates of the Caribbean, like the movies did such a good job of capturing the like swashbuckling nature of Jack Sparrow and the games when they just, when they come out and it's just like, Oh, I just kind of like my character's far away. And like, you know, my perspective is pulled way out 
and I just sort of like swing my sword at faceless bad guys until they fall down. It doesn't work, or at least it doesn't work anymore. Juan, since we have you here and you have a lot of experience with this, I, I want to ask you a bunch of questions about how games based on existing IPs actually get made. Who approaches who about making a video game based on an existing IP? Does a, does a, game, does a game studio have an idea for like, oh, we want to make a Spider-Man game, let's go talk to Marvel? Or does Marvel approach someone and say like, hey, we want a video game based on our, on our property? You know, it could happen either way. What ends up happening usually, some biz de- business development guys or developers somewhere up on the you know executive chain will be you know having conversations and talk about like collaborating and um that's how you end up with like partnerships and or running across someone and saying okay you know what i think you did this 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 could work and so you kind of get like a conversation going maybe like a email or something and then eventually like once the tangible work starts you know talking it's like okay let's 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 really talk about this You know, you'd probably have to include like your lawyers and, you know, contracts, but whatever you bring to the table, it could totally be from the developer side. You know, you could, you could be building this like prototype that isn't necessarily a finished product, but it could turn into something. So one of the things that ends up happening is sometimes the licensor will pull out and then you still have, you know, all this work that you can turn into something. When I was at Marvel, we stopped uh, production on the Iron Man 3 video game. If, if you've seen Iron Man 3, the movie, you know that, like, the Mandarin isn't who you fight, but mm-hmm. I don't wanted you to do it in the Iron Man game. Whoa, really? <laughs> yeah, and, like... That's funny. Some, like, demos and, like, some early prototypes from a developer who eventually did not make the Iron Man game, but they took all that jet suit stuff mm-hmm. and released it in, as part of, like, you know, DLCs down the line. Hmm. Very rarely, I think, will the licensor say, hey, we want you to make this game for us. Normally, it's other developers bidding for a chance to make something for them, you know, with their universe, like give us permission to make your stuff is I think what the power dynamics. So how does the money work in that situation? Are you, you know, is it negotiated for like a single game? Um, Do you just buy the rights and then that's all, you know, when we were at telltale, you know, we had Marvel games, DC games, we're making Mojang games. Um, so it's really those developer relationships in telltale's case though, was someone like HBO getting a cut of the, the games as they were being, Oh, absolutely. Okay. So is that typical or can you just buy the license to something and then make a game and you keep all the, the profits of the game because you paid for the license? Does it work that way ever? I think, I think it goes into like way deeper than here's the license fee. And then like, uh, cut of the proceeds is split here or split there. Sometimes there's even like caps where it's like, unless the game sells this much amount of money, then you'll start getting money back on, you know, like, Mm. you know, and and the licensor, like they're not the one that has to make the game. Right. Yeah. But you know, if you have these like really big companies like EA then it's like, Oh yeah, well, you know, we can cut everyone out. And, you know, be your sole monopoly game maker. And, you know, now it's really hard for anyone 
that wants to make a Star Wars game that's not mm-hmm. under the EA umbrella to ever get that chance. Now, does a company like EA, are they able to just make as many Star Wars games as they want? Or somewhere behind the scenes, is there like a, a limit? Or like have they negotiated for the, the kinds of games that they can make? Like, like if EA said... Like we've got the rights to Star Wars, we want to make a dating simulator set in that universe. Are are do you think they're able to do that? Um, I yeah, I think they can. You know, but I, whoever is doing their like budget and planning out their financial strategy are probably going to be like, hey, well, what is selling? Oh, I know, third person action games. We should do that because this sold then we should do this. You know, it's, it's a very similar pattern to what you see in like Hollywood going with the safe things that will make you money as opposed to taking those risks because triple mm-hmm. a games take millions of dollars to make and years. And, you know, that's a long-term investment to say, all right, let's try to put everything that we have into this for it to fail. You know, like not exactly uh a safe business. Yeah, I have to imagine that the larger the IP, the more adverse to risks they're willing to take. Yeah. I wonder, though, I mean, like, because to me, something like a game that feels like it's taking a risk is something like uh, the Telltale games. That to me feels very risky to take someone like Batman and, and put him in a world where he's not really punching people, where he's doing the like the Batman investigation stuff. But that feels but risky to me. The Walking Dead was only getting popular well uh, it was only getting more popular because the tv show was a hit you know so mm-hmm. it wasn't a hu- it wasn't star wars by any means um and telltale had great success with that so they were i'm sure they were able to leverage that success into all the other ips that they were able to make games for I guess maybe I guess maybe what my point is is I feel like over time I feel like risks have have shown to pay off and I think that that's why especially lately these games based off existing IPs feel more refreshing than they used to. Like they, they feel new and exciting in ways that the old ones didn't, because I feel like the old ones, they did that. They said like, look, you have to, you have to do it beat for beat what we do in the movie because we don't want to take any risks on this. And now we get games like the Spider-Man game, which doesn't line up with any of the current movies, but it takes a risk by just sort of saying like, look, we're just going to capture the essence of Spider-Man. You know, we're going to give you that 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 feeling of being in in that world, of being that character, and I, I feel like that that's why it succeeds is because it's it's in some regards kind of risky. I say this about a lot of games, but I would really like to see a documentary or something about EA's relationship to Star Wars franchise uh, and what's going on with that, because you know everyone knows it's uh it's a big mess right now. It seems like so many potential games have been canceled or not really worked out the way that they had hoped you know star wars battlefront 2 didn't sell nearly as much as the first one and that was because of their mistakes with the monetization so um the stuff that we hear it comes out you know after the games will be canceled but i'm sure that there's a lot of interesting stories there to to learn about what's going on that because i i don't know i think that whatever happens with ea and star wars is going to shape the future of a lot of future developer publisher and film ip relations yeah Yeah. i mean like think of all like all the potential star wars games that could be being made by other people right now Mm -hmm. you know that aren't like beholden to ea you know even if it was just like small stuff right like 
small indie developers that were like, hey, like, give us like a small license because we just want to make like the card game, you know, or other things that like still fit within the Star Wars universe, but don't necessarily need that pull of like Darth Vader or anything like 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 a license can really, you know, help take your game like and put it on to a different trajectory for sales because of the built in fan audience that's already established. Absolutely. I mean, I, I know a lot of people who are Star Wars fans, but don't play more than one video game a year. And yeah, Battlefront was one of those for a lot of people. It kept galaxies around. I'm just going to say it. Yeah. Should have kept galaxies around. <laughs> <laughs> it could be the one game you play forever. Man, I, I would be like, if somebody was keeping like, uh, like the one last server, you know, and like, could log in and play it like i would help pitch in to that kickstarter that'd be cool yeah i love every whenever somebody mentions star wars galaxies around someone who played it that is always the same reaction oh yeah let's just get that server going again come on let's just get it going again someone (laughs) plug in the someone plug in the the cord let's get it going now one as someone who's worked um on video games based on existing ips what in what ways do you think the industry can improve like how how can we make video games based on movies television comic books better moving forward i think accessibility in what ways in what ways so when i say accessibility i mean not limiting ourselves to high-end pcs or gaming consoles like thinking about their ways to play and when you're talking about accessibility like getting the game to as many kinds of people as possible I've spent this episode kind of jokingly ragging on dating sims, but I think that's a perfect example of like a kind of market that is typically underserved by these kinds of games that we're talking about. I think a lot of video games, especially these ones based on existing IP, they typically cater to the male power fantasy, like the idea of of like overpowering a bad guy, you know, defeating an enemy by force. These are the kinds of experiences that get used over and over again video games have become very good at telling those kinds of stories but there's people out there who who like the interactive nature of video games but aren't interested in the violent aspect of it or the male power fantasy aspect of it but do it make make a star wars dating simulator let's get those let's get everyone into the into the star i could think of a few people interested in dating captain america exactly so I'm, i'm i'm right there with you i totally i totally agree with what you were saying there Juan. Jared, as some as someone who's on the outside of the gaming industry, what do you think that that the gaming industry can do better to make video games based on existing properties better in your eyes? I mean, I'm just going to echo what you guys are already saying, really, because that is what I want to see is stuff that isn't just the third person action game. It's a real bummer that EA has had the Star Wars license for so long and and has had so much trouble with it. Um, there's so many other experiences that I would have liked to have, you know, and all the all the Star Wars games that I remember fondly are before this era uh, from all different developers. So IP licensing is tricky. I understand that. And it's only getting trickier with the amount of people involved and the amount of things that are uh, out in the world. But I, I, I really think that we're limiting ourselves by handing out carte blanche to, you know, a, a, a single publisher or anything like that. So I'd like to see the law side of it get sorted out a little bit better and serve the fans a little bit better than it has been. Right on. That was good. I think, uh, like we were saying, like getting the games in front of as many people as possible is, is a good idea. So I'm glad we're all 
we don't always agree at the end of these shows, but I'm glad we're all kind of in agreement about that one. It's um, a tricky subject. I mean, we could have sat here is. and just talked about all the games that we've played over the years based on things, but uh, there's bigger picture stuff too that's in, it's important to think about. There is. Why don't we kind of bring this to a close and please, if anyone out there has their own thoughts on video games based on existing IPs or video game adaptations, I suspect they do. Uh, send us your thoughts because we'd like to continue this conversation in the future as well. Uh, you can reach out to us at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. I'm sure people have some strong thoughts, especially on Star Wars, so let us hear them. Jared, why don't we, uh, why don't we see if we got any, uh, in, any mail in that bag? And then this is where you add like a rustling sound effect. There you go. Um, here we go. I'll pick out this one at random. Regarding, this is from at Mr. Mischievous on Twitter, one of our favorite listeners out there. Uh, he says, episode 39 feedback. I have to agree with Ellie and Steve. Epic isn't selling these dance moves because they're really cool dances. People buy them because they have an emotional investment into whatever made it cool to begin with. Just my two cents. Uh, and he's referring to, I think it was, it was you said something about uh, the the dances aren't popular because they're dances. They're popular because they are associated with something that people remember. I think that's part of it. I don't know exactly what my my um, sentiments were at the time. I think that there are there's definitely people who were born after Scrubs that have no idea what that dance is. You know what I mean? Like they only know it from Fortnite. Yeah. But there are definitely, you know, a lot of the dances that made it into Fortnite are are dances that people know from popular culture, from from current popular culture. So I think that there's, you know, it's a little of column A and a little of column B. I just think that dancing, like anything else, is an art form and it takes work and practice. And even if it's a silly, even if it's a silly dance or a short dance that, you know, that was someone's. That was someone's idea that they put out into the world. And I just think that they should be entitled to some kind of um, compensation for that if another company is sort of taking that and doing a one-to-one recreation in their game. Although, I don't know if you, I don't know if you guys saw the news. It's like all the uh, lawsuits are now shut down. There are yeah, no ongoing really lawsuits anywhere. about this stuff. And it kind of this kind of plays into our whole discussion on this episode about IP and, and who gets who gets what. And uh yeah, Alfonso Ribeiro. Sorry, buddy. Didn't work out this time. <laughs> Not this time. <laughs> so, do you, um, and Juan, do you have any experience working with stuff like dances and emotes in games? Like, do you have any insight into how, how this side of the business is handled? To, to a little bit, yeah. Whenever you're publishing something, you kind of have to make sure that you're not someone else's work and claiming it as your own without giving credit, which is why you usually see the thing at the bottom, which is the catch all that says, all people in this thing were made something, something, anything is just pure coincidence. Mm -hmm. Like that is, that is there for a reason. And it's because when you're putting out mass media out there, you have to have like permission from everything to put out. It's the old death race excuse. Absolutely. (laughs) And there's, there's, there's nothing but like literally legal teams, at least on film, you know, we'll go out there and like contact whoever the person that made the t-shirt on and say like, Hey, can we use this t-shirt? like with our main character, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and when it comes to like games, like we do that kind of stuff right now. In Saved by the Bell, the game that I'm working on, a lot of the stuff that we understand why people want to play is for the 90s pop culture, right? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I can't 
use the names of specific brands or things. We won't uh, see any surge soda in the game. Right. But I can talk around it you know, and I can say that green calf. You know, like, <laughs> so like, like, you know, certain things like that, that I can like put into the player's mindset and talk around still provide the same quasi experience without any necessary like legal clearances or repercussions. So it's like a fine, a fine line of like permission and what I'm going after. Mm-hmm. Rather than straight up copy paste, like let's motion cap the dance, sell it. Mr. Mischievous, thank you again for the feedback and uh, for reopening those old wounds from that episode. <laughs> I love that topic. I love talking about it because I know a lot of people have very strong feelings about it. So I, I appreciate you sending in the feedback about it. And unless we got anything else, I think that's it for listener emails. Again, you can always send us your emails or your thoughts, podcast at gbfeature.com. Well, I guess you have to put your thought into an email. I don't think you can just send your thoughts to us. Unless you can, and that's pretty cool, too. It's a peripheral that's coming out. I'm sure it exists. (laughs) Email us, podcast at gbfeature.com. That's going to do it for this episode. Before we get out of here, Juan, again, thank you for being here. Where can people find your work, and how can they keep up with you? Um, Keep an eye out for our game series, Your Story Universe. iPhone and Android uh, sometime this quarter. And I, I'm only on one part of social media, Twitter, and you can find me at Juan Cow, J-U-A-N-C-O-W. Baca is Spanish for cow. I know, it's a, gr- it's a great Twitter handle. <laughs> well, again, thank you, thank you so much for being here. As a reminder, we release new episodes every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and you want to help us out, head over to iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. And I'm at Jared Bruner everywhere on the web. We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. All right, bye, guys. Thank you, guys.